So last week we started a sermon series that will carry us through this uh, season of Lent about covenants. Uh, so as a refresher, covenant is one of these church words that we use a lot, and it sometimes gets compared to a contract because a covenant is a form of an agreement. However, there's a big difference between a contract and a covenant. Uh, contracts are built on distrust. They are an insurance policy of sorts that allow us to guarantee that the agreement that we make will be upheld. And if it's not, then there are consequences laid out in the contract that kick in. A covenant is really very different. Covenant is built on trust and mutual relationship. It's built on the idea that we are entering into an agreement with the expectation that the promises made will be kept as best as we can. We're trusting one another, uh, expecting not only the best of intentions out of one another, expecting only the best of intentions out of one another. Covenant brings us together and builds real relationship that says, I'm not just expecting that you keep up your end of the, of the agreements, but I am here to help you keep up your end, and I'm trusting that you are here to help me keep up mine. So that's just your quick overview again of what a covenant is. Now, um, I'm wondering, is there anyone here who's never broken a promise? Nobody? No, of course not, because we've all done this. We've all broken a promise. We've all been guilty of this. Whether the promise was to somebody else, or to ourselves, or even to God. Now, given that it's Lent, um, and sometimes Lenten disciplines are kind of like New Year's resolutions, um, and as quickly as we enter into the new year, those uh, New Year's resolutions are broken, so sometimes are our Lenten practices. Maybe you've broken one of those, or maybe you're thinking of something else deeper, something more significant, something that caused real pain. The Bible is filled with these broken promises, broken laws, and broken covenants. And we often find these associated with some of our greatest heroes in the Bible, such as Abraham. No matter how hard we try, we never achieve perfection on our own. For on our own, we come up short, we're imperfect, we feel weak. And it's kind of like in our own way, we're like Sarah, in that we are barren, as the scripture tells us this evening. Sometimes in our imperfection, we can't help but break our promises, not because we don't desire to keep them, but because we are imperfect, and sometimes we just come up empty. There are some promises that are never broken, however. Well, not ours anyway. Those are God's, of course. God's promises are always kept. We see from today's reading that even a promise as unfathomable and seemingly impossible as making a great nation out of an elderly barren couple uh, was not only fulfilled for Abraham and Sarah's sake, but magnified by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And that has become a blessing to us all. So God made this promise way back to Abraham and Sarah 
and throughout the generations, through all that would come from them, from their uh, commitment to this promise, led to Jesus, Mary and Joseph, and to us. A promise that continues to be carried on by God as God has passed it down from generation to generation. God didn't need Abraham and Sarah to be perfect in this in order to, uh, for them to be used and to be blessed. God only needed one thing from them, in fact, and that was to have faith. God wasn't drawn to their strength and virility, but perhaps, however, God was drawn to their emptiness, to their lacking, to their need of something. It's important to understand that uh, Sarah and Abraham were in their 90s when you think about this story and just how incredible it is. They were very much an older couple in their 90s. And so I can just kind of imagine, as I, whenever I picture this story in my head, I imagine Abraham and Sarah are standing there and God's like, and now you're going to have a kid. And as most of us would think, 90-year-olds are going to go, yeah, okay. It's almost laughable. In fact, Sarah and Abraham do, in fact, exactly that. They start laughing. Uh, the text says that Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Now, in Hebrew Bible, there's actually a, uh, the word that is to, or the phrase, uh, fell on your face and laughed, is actually a, um, an act of worship. Uh, so, it's not unusual that one would fall on their face, because this was a sign of obedience and worshipfulness. And it's also a sign of Abraham actually a, 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 a sign of assent to the covenants. But then in verse 17, the falling is joined with laughter. And obedience mixes with this incredulity as Abraham and Sarah, who know for a fact that they have never been able to conceive a child together. And yet, in this elderly age, they are going to be parents. And not just parents, because, I mean, that would be fantastical enough, but from this child that they will have will come great nations and great leaders. From one shall become many. Wrestling with this absurd notion that at their age, they would be parents. And we have the benefit of being able to look back and knowing that it wasn't even just that they would, a great people would come from them, but actually three of the great world religions have come directly from this promise. At least we trace ourselves back to this promise. So here are Abraham and Sarah in their 90s, and God makes a promise, an absurd promise to these two folks who felt like they didn't really have anything to offer, at least not in that way. How were Abraham and Sarah going to conceive of a child in their 90s? How could they ever live up to a covenant that seems that only God can uphold? 
But you know what? God is not looking for them to bring anything other than themselves. In this story, God asks for their faithfulness. Now, God's already been traveling with them for a time, and so this isn't actually the first covenant God asks of them, but this is the second one, and this is the important one, because this is the one where God will make a great nation of them. If we go back two chapters, there's another covenant that God makes with Abraham uh, when he tells him to leave his land and go to this other place. Uh, that is the first one, but this is the big one. And it's almost as if God said, okay, first I'm going to ask you just to go, and I'm going to see what you can do if you're willing to do this. It's almost as if God is saying, I'm going to ask you to do something that sounds probably crazy. I want you to pack up your family and go to this place. And God's just waiting to see if Abraham will do it. If Abraham has the faith to get up and go and do as God is calling and once Abraham has done this, then God says, because you have shown your faithfulness, now I'm making this promise to you. From you shall come a great nation. Kings and leaders will come from you. Sometimes when God makes a promise to us, when God carries out the promise to us, it's simply asking on our behalf to answer with faith, to respond with the little bit that we have. God is there reaching out when we feel like we have nothing to give and saying that this is a covenant I have made and I am here to help you see it fulfilled. And it's not because God feels obligated but because God earnestly desires for us to know God's great love. And God's greatest desire is to see all of humanity restored, to see each and every one of us fulfill our potential and to help us find our way into the deepest understanding of the depths of God's grace and mercy and love. And so God is like, God's not asking us to do things and making promise to be in relationship because God's demanding things of us, but because God wants to help us along. God is entering into relationship with Abraham and Sarah because God has a plan for all of the generations that will come from this couple and from their child. And in the same way God makes promise to be with Abraham and Sarah, God continues to make that promise to us today. It's God's great desire that we be restored to right relationship with God and with one another. Now in the UMC we talk about this in a, a way of, uh, uh, that I know I probably have talked about quite a few times, the three variations on grace. Um, provenient grace is the grace that goes before us. This is the grace that is working on us and tugging at our hearts uh, when we might feel the it's the grace that is working on us that is tugging at our hearts that we might feel from time to time that gentle nudging that tells us when we might be doing something we shouldn't and that good feeling we get when we have done what we should and so many many other things this is a god this is god at work in our lives calling us to find the right paths, to walk in the way of Christ, helping us to see and know the Holy Spirit. 
God calling us back to where God has always intended us to be, calling us from the place of the broken as much of the world is to the place of renewal, to the place of God's peace, that everlasting peace. It's the place God has always desired for us to be. And just like Sarah and Abraham who entered into this covenant feeling like they didn't have what was needed themselves, but they did have the willingness to go. God can use us to make a difference. God can use each of us in maybe ways we never imagined to do things we never dreamed we would be able to with gifts that we do not think that we have. One of the things that kept coming to mind throughout this week as I was trying to figure out what I wanted to write for my sermon um, was, and many of you have probably seen this too, it's the students of uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. Um, something about uh, what they have done in such a short amount of time is just almost unbelievable. These kids, and they're kids, we have to remember that. Um, some of them might be old enough to be your classmates next year. Um, some of them will, they won't even be in college till several years after you graduate. These are kids who, after running for their lives from a school shooter, have pretty much taken every media opportunity that you can imagine and have been making their voices heard. In the face of what I can only imagine is an unbelievably difficult trage tragedy, they have taken from the depths of their loss and transformed it into a faith that can change the system. In the face of power like the NRA and politicians who stand in the way and against the current of the naysayers who say nothing will ever change because this time won't be any different, they've been standing up and speaking with a narrative that in the face of a narrative that says they're too young to understand, not mature enough to stand at the adult table, and yet they continue to stand and speak, organizing for justice and just change. What others see lacking, they are finding a will to keep pushing to be heard and to see change come. And when all the common wisdom says they have nothing to bring, they seem to not be backing down. Now, I realize this isn't necessarily wrapped in a religious context, but there is a faith to what they are doing, a hope in what might be. And that is what we do in church. We have faith where others say there should be none. We look and see the impossible and say it can be done. In this season of Lent, we are invited to re-examine our commitment to our faith, to remember what first drew us to the faith, what it was that spoke to us first, and to look into the places where we might be lacking in faith. Now, oftentimes, as when we do inward analysis of ourselves, we can find that we might come up lacking. We might see that uh, we feel empty sometimes, that we might feel we're not good enough because, after all, we know ourselves better than any other. I know all of my little flaws. 
and my insecurities and my not good enoughs. I know my vulnerabilities. But God says that's okay. Because I don't need you to have it all together before you come before me with faith. God doesn't need us to be perfect. God doesn't need us to act like we have what God needs. God knows what, that we don't, at least not in the ways we're typically aware. Again, thinking about the story of Abraham and Sarah, they came and offered themselves faithfully going where God sent them, and God says, I'm going to make a great nation from you. Not because of something they could do, but because they were offering themselves to God. And that is why Jesus came and dwelt among us, to help us see that where we are not enough, where we are empty, where we see lacking, the Holy Spirit sees something different. The working of the Holy Spirit, by the working of the Holy Spirit, God sees promise in us. The same promise that God has been seeing since we first turned away and tried to make it our own, on our own. The same promise that God saw in Abraham and Sarah, the promise that one day the kingdom of God will be fulfilled, that peace will reign, that we all will truly be one, and none lacking or being less than. And until then, we hold on to the promise that God is with us, calling us to the promise that God sees in us, calling us to see that in the little things we might do, we can change the world. We can shift just a little bit towards God's great promise. That in the little things we might do, we might see that we can have such a big impact on one another. That where we might see lacking, God sees opportunity. And in community with one another, when we are all trying to live into this promise from our places of emptiness, God can bring forth great leaders and whole nations. So maybe being a little bit empty is not the worst place to be, because God is known to speak and use barren vessels, and out of them serve a great feast of grace. Amen.